We're uh, finishing up a study in Micah, which is a Old Testament prophet who gave some words to a number of kings to a southern part of the kingdom of Judah in Israel at a time when um, God had blessed them over the years and they had forgotten that blessing. It is something that any one of us can do. We can experience God's blessing and we can begin to live in that blessing and enjoy that blessing and forget. So let's pray. Father, it is um, our desire that we would always remember, not so much that we're walking in your blessing, that's always a fruit of, of just knowing you and, and walking with you with humility and, and mercy and justice like we just sang. So keep our hearts right with you and with one another and in relationship that is right with those around us. We thank you and, and ask your Holy Spirit to speak through these words of Micah once again to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there's something God hasn't seen which you see every day. I want you to think about that. There's something God hasn't seen which you see every day. Let me put it in a question. What is it that you see every day that God cannot see? Now, in saying that, you, you may think that sounds almost a little heretical. To think that there's something, the omniscient, omnipotent, incomparable, supremely sovereign God who sees all, doesn't see. But as we conclude this study on Micah, it's exactly the question that Micah puts before those whom he is talking to. It's this question that arises every time the name Micah is mentioned because the very name Micah means, who is a God like you? And this question is the key verse of the entire book. In fact, if you look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18, as it comes to a conclusion, it says in, in, in his message, he, he ends it with his name, Micah, which means, who is a God like you? And Micah wasn't the first to inquire using that question. That question was asked by Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It was asked by the historian in the book of Kings. David himself in the Psalms inquired to people to think about that. And it was asked by many, many, many people throughout the Bible and throughout history. And you yourself may have even said that. Who is like this God? The question that is asked, it's rather rhetorical. It, it really, it in a sense, begs a simple and a quick answer, but really it requires for you to think thoughtfully and reflectively when the question is asked. Because there is something that you see every day that God has not seen. What is it that you see every day that God does not see? His equal. God does not see his equal. He has never seen his equal. You and I see our equals every day. In fact, we see some that we measure ourselves to and we go, oh, they're a little better than us. We look at some and they go, they're a little less than us. Some we think maybe are kind of equal to us in some ways, right? But every day, as God looks out, there is no one that he can look to and, and, and see as his equal. There is no one like God. 
And so as Micah's name declares, every time it's been mentioned, every time he heard it as a child, every time his parents would call him, it would be, who is like this God who has no equal? The God who created you is supremely, sovereignly unlike anyone you know. He has no equals in this earth. He has no equals in this universe. He has no equals in any stratosphere that might be found in any age. So Micah concludes with this question that demands really a simple answer. No one, God, there is no one like you. It's a good question, but it's, it's pretty clear there's no one like you. But it really does require a very thoughtful and reflective response on your part and on my part. As we think through this very last chapter of Micah. You see, Micah came as a prophet to the king and to the people of Jerusalem, as I'd mentioned, and he came to remind them of the promise of God. God had set them free from their slavery. They were in Egypt, and, and God himself, through Moses, Moses, raised up a leader, and through Moses, freed them from the Egyptians and brought them through a wilderness and, 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 and ushered them into a promised land. And on their way, he gave them a contract, in a sense. He said, I will commit myself to you forever. And I will bless you as you listen to me and as you walk with me and as you stay in a right relationship with me and as you, in the same way that I have freed you and I have shown you mercy and I have acted in justice towards you and, and, and you see the humility of my own person coming down to meet you in your point of need, if you will do the same to those as you saw me do to you, you're going to experience, you're going to experience blessing. But the moment you begin to think that there is something more supreme, more sovereign, and you begin to forget the fact there is no equal, but begin to think the equal is maybe the power that you get through, through the money that, that you are earning that would somehow provide for you the security that you need, that would somehow provide for you the things and, and the, the, the vacations and the trips and the, and the other luxuries that you so want, those amenities. If you in some way think that that is supreme enough and you put that in first place, you'll find that that will eventually not ever supply what your heart really longs for. The moment that you begin to think that somehow supremely, sovereignly, there is a relationship with another person, whether it be your spouse or whether it be a friend or whether it be a family or it be some other person, that you think in some way this relationship is more important, becomes more sovereignly, supremely incomparable, and you forget me. Now, I'm not saying any person ever says, you know, in their mind consciously, this is more important, but doesn't it just happen? We begin to put our trust in those things that become more important than God himself. And he says, when that begins to happen, you're going to find the same frustration that these people in Israel found. That Micah came to warn them about that you had made a commitment. This God has come to you humbly, reached down, freed you from a place of slavery and bondage where, where you were in a position where you needed deliverance. And then he began to give you all these things. As you began to walk with him, you forgot about him. And the way you forgot about him is you forgot to do the very same things to others that he has done to you. And that's how it shows up. And so Micah comes bringing this message, reminding them that only God, only God is sovereign and supreme and incomparable and uncommon in every way. And he asks us to live a very uncommon walk in the world that we live in. 
which will always be tested, always be tried. You will always find temptation to move from that uncommon path that serves this uncommon, incomparable, holy, sovereign God. And so he asks this question as he concludes. Who is like our God? And there are many ways. But in these verses, if you look at chapter 7, verse 8, to the end of verse 20, there are three ways specifically that I want to share with you that God has no equal. That Micah, in a sense, seeks to answer this question. So as you begin in verses seven, chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, he'll say, first of all, he has no equal in holiness and justice. And as you move on to verses 14 through 17, he will share with us that there is no equal to God with regard to his care and his guidance. And then those last verses, in verses 18 through 20, we have no equal in a God who forgives and is faithful. So as you look at verses 8 through 13, there is no one like God in his holiness and justice. God has no equal when it comes to being just and fair. He is not partial to anyone. He is always angered by sin. It always ticks him off when he sees selfishness. Because he's perfect. And in his perfect holiness, which means he's so unlike us, which is that word holy really means, he is a perfect judge. He is righteous in the sense he is righteous in that sense of the word that every time he does what is right. Isn't that a good thing to know? You ever, you ever, I remember when I used to coach hockey and, and I would get a little emotional, as you can see sometimes from the pulpit. And I would get a little emotional and the refs wouldn't be too happy with me. Or they wouldn't be happy with some other people on their team, whatever. And you have that experience where you would kind of get a rough and you'd kind of go, oh boy. And then the next game you'd see him and you'd go, oh shoot. Right? Ever had that kind of experience? Or maybe you had a certain judge and this certain judge was, was, was keyed in a certain way with regard to some kind of legal situation that you were having with a property settlement and then you went ahead and, and that whole thing took place and you realized there was, at least in your mind, you thought there's some bias and then you see that judge again, oh no. You don't ever have that with God. He is perfectly just. Never does he make his determination by looking at a person he always makes it out of his heart of justice. He is fair. He is right 100% all the time. So that he begins and he says, if you look at his response to sin, because his righteousness always has to act against sin, he sees selfishness and he sees what it does and how it devastates people's lives, how it devastates your relationship with the people you most love, how it devastates even your work environment or in your school situation with your friends. And he sees that and he, he has to act against it. And so verse 8 says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. He sees gloating. The very enemy that he allowed to come in to overtake and to, to judge, in a sense, Israel, he now sees them gloating. Or he sees the neighbors gloating and he says, Don't do it. And Israel says, Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. See, God sees the fallen, and when he sees the fallen and he hears them cry out to him, he has to act in mercy and justice. In verse 9, as you go on, God doesn't even play favorites. When his children sin, when his own stand up arrogantly, rebelliously, and they trespass against which he has asked them to not do, he still has to deal righteously. 
So in verse 9 you read, because I have sinned, says Israel, against him, I will endure the Lord's wrath. I will, for a period of time, come under his hand of discipline because God needs to take out of my life this sin and the selfishness that seems to get in the way. It destroys things so that God can begin to purify my heart and make my heart such that it can actually receive what it so longs for. And I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. You see this sense of justice again, right? This God who is justice, who acts with fairness. And he will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Or, or some translations actually use the word justice. And verse 10 goes on and says, Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. The very ones who are gloating. The very ones who are standing in their own selfishness and gloating. How many of you... Um, we're involved with March Madness and, and pick the team. Come on, raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, there's some people out there. How many picked Kansas? Yeah, how many didn't pick Kansas? Lift your hand up high. You're probably gloating right now. It is not a good thing. Then my enemies will see it and will be covered with shame. And, and she who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see your downfall even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets, like mud that is being walked on. This might be a very much an allusion to this king of Babylon who was to come, Sennacherib, who stood outside, not himself personally, but he sent his commander with a letter to be read to the people who were in, in Jerusalem, waiting for this army to overtake them. And this commander reads a letter from the king and he says, what in the world are you guys doing in there? Look at all the cities that this king, this kingdom has actually devastated. All the cities of Israel itself that have been marched on and, and like mud have been walked over. Do you in any way think you're going to survive this? Where is your God? He hasn't shown up yet. But the God of justice and fairness, this God who is righteous, makes it very clear to him. He says in verses 11 through 13, Yes, you will rise again. There will be a day where your walls will be built. Verse 11, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, from the sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. God will rebuild these walls that were completely leveled by Babylon. God will actually once again extend your boundaries that had been so, had receded so much over the years as a result of your own sin. And God will actually take these people who have been deported to other cities and he will begin to bring them all back when he establishes once again his kingdom out of justice. And, and this is the picture of this God who is holy and righteous. And God promises there will be a day when Jerusalem will be rebuilt, boundaries established and people returning. Now look at verse 13, though. I think it's very interesting. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants. And if you note more specifically, he, he actually makes it very clear, as he emphasizes, as the result of their deeds. And, and it's important to know that in the Hebrew, that plural noun is always reflected in, in that Hebrew as not just deeds, but evil deeds. And so he's saying, in this sense, the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their evil deeds. God is holy and just. He is angered by sin. He hates his destructiveness because that sin, our sin, our self-centered living, our life that puts anything above God ends in desolation. 
which means the word actual here, desolation, means barrenness, isolation, and lack of all that is good. It's the very same thing that Jesus would point to often when he would speak to people when he say, find your fullness in your life in the Father. For outside of the Father, you will find barrenness, isolation, and a lack of all that is good. The word shalom, peace, you won't have it. A few years back, I met a young woman. She was about 26 years of age. She was Asian. And she was serving with an organization that I have partnered with called Food for the Hungry. And I had met with her in order just to hear her story. She was, she was traveling through the Minneapolis area. She had spent um, a number of years, I think it was three to four years, in northern Uganda. And what she was uh, assigned to do and what she chose to do, what she actually gave her life and sacrificed her well-being to do, was to restore children who had been brutalized by this Ugandan civil war that was taking place. In fact, for the past 20 years, there's a man named Joseph Kony who rules in that northern part of Uganda, a monster who is a self-proclaimed son of God. And he's committed some of the worst atrocities that has been that's known to man through a group called the Lord's Resistance Army. And, and that is what this young lady was, was seeking to rescue these children from. These are children 10 to 13, 14 years of age. And I had an opportunity to talk to her, and, and she just shared some of the horrors of what's going on. And as I listened to it, and they actually did some reading on it, it's really true. And if you don't believe in a Satan, I, I don't know how you can't when you come against that kind of evil. Because if Satan is alive and manifesting himself, he is surely present in this cultish and brutal group whose trademark is kidnapping of children who then are subsequently forced at gunpoint to commit murder, rape, and all kinds of acts, even acts of cannibalism. Imagine that. They would go into villages and take these children. They would wipe out these villagers through the very children they were taking. They would make them do these detestable acts. And during his reign of terror, it's believed that Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army have kidnapped more than 38,000 children, killing some and forcing the rest to become killers as child soldiers. Girls who are 12 and 13 years of age are brutalized by gangs and then forced to become sex slaves to rebel commanders. And the boys are forced to kill members of their family all in the, in, in the, in the process of doing this so they can never return back to their village. They are, in a sense, now completely abandoned. And I could go on with how despicably horrible it is. I only say this because when you think about it, and when I listened to her story, amazed at her courage, I was overwhelmed with how disgusting that is, isn't it? That there would be a tyrant that would do those kind of things to children. That's just sin. It's just selfishness at its most brutal, its almost end point. And I think about it as I react to that and I look at that, I just, with as much justice and righteousness and fairness and, and all that might be in me, I'm abhorred by it. But as I read this, I, I couldn't help but think about when I was in college and I began to understand that the sin that I look at at other people and I see out here that, uh, that, that basically causes me to, to react with such hatred and, and disgust 
I remember in college, I was wrestling with this whole sense of what about my sin and, and my own sinfulness and, and this God who is holy and righteous and just. And I was was wrestling through because I didn't see what in my mind seemed to be that bad of stuff going on in my life. But it hit me one day when I was reading the reports in, in the paper, New York had this power outage years ago. I don't know if you remember this, but years ago he had this power outage. And as I read the paper, they were marveling at the fact that when it was dark and in the, in, in the, the shadow of the evening, these people, many of them who would never do a thing wrong, were actually doing things that they would never do under the cover of darkness. And I just thought to myself, you know, it's really amazing. I've grown up in a really good home with certain values, etc. What if I grew up in a whole different place, in the, the, the very same seeds of sin that was in my heart, that grew up here, that never, never flourished and flowered, were just another environment, and those seeds were actually watered by hatred and, and cruelty and anger and all these different things, and that began to blossom and grow. I began to realize that those seeds of sin, it's that which God cannot stand. That He needs to get out of the human heart. So you may look and go, you know what, praise God, I'm not anything like a a Joseph Coney, but you know what, it's the tyrant of that seed of sin that's in each one of our hearts that God looks at and goes, I've got to do something with that. Because that is what is destroying And that is what causes desolation. And so there's no one like God when it comes to righteousness and holiness because he sees sin and he he cannot allow it to be because that sin is the very thing that destroys and desolates all that he's created. But there's no one like God in care and in guidance. God is the good shepherd. And he goes on in verse 14, not only is he a good shepherd, he's the best shepherd. He's the supreme shepherd. As we were looking at Micah through these last few weeks, you look at Micah chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 4. Every time Micah is speaking about judgment, he would come and he'd start speaking about hope. And when he would speak about hope, he would always describe God as a shepherd. Because in that day, rulers who were good rulers were looked to and likened as a shepherd. Because shepherds in that agricultural kind of setting would be the ones that would be looked at. They would take care of this flock. And if they had the ability to be a good shepherd, they would have a lively and healthy flock that would have no fear. That would would trust their shepherd to take them to one fertile land after another so that they would be full and have no worries. And so in verse 14, after he says, here is this holy and this righteous and this fair God who will act on your behalf. Who also is angered and has to deal with sin is also this very good shepherd to any person who will come under his care. And so when you come to these hope sections, the real hope is that this God, this God who is unlike any others, will be a shepherd in your life. So if you look at verse 14, he says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasture lands, or in some translations, in the middle of Carmel, which means um, this idea of this rich pasture. The idea of forest in the, in the middle of this fertile pasture land refers to an orchard like a forest that is the finest, finest orchard imaginable. 
filled with all kinds of olive trees and fruit trees, laden with, but most forests don't have grass, but with thick grass. It's this incredible, ideal picture of these forests. But then as you go on, and he says, not only are, the, are, are, are this is the kind of shepherd who will lead you in this place, he also says, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago. And what he's giving is this picture of the shepherd who is so good at making certain that as you follow him and you allow him to be the supreme leader and, and guide in your life, he will be the very one who will bring you to these incredibly fertile places. He will bring you even to like these fields of Bashan and Gilead. And what would be a reminder of the people of Israel, it recalls for them when they went through the wilderness, they would go through the wilderness and God provided for them and their flocks would come and they would find these little patches of green grass. But when they came actually to the edge of the promised land, as they stood there on that eastern edge, they looked out at this place called Bashan and Gilead, and they couldn't believe here was not just some patches of green, but it was green all over the place. It was so full and green that a few of the, the, the brothers of the tribes came to them and said, that's the land we want. You know how that is. I mean, they've been walking along and they, and they haven't had much. They've, they've been cared for. They've been living on what, what God is providing for them. But also when they turn the corners of this place where God said they would move into this place of promise and basically walk into it, they see this incredibly fertile land. And so they say here, as Micah says, this is your shepherd. He shepherds his people with their staff and he leads them into these incredibly fertile places. If you will, if you will just allow for him to lead and to guide you and to direct your life. And verse 15 is the key verse to all this. He says, in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. And what he's asking them to remember is their experience once again when they were enslaved in Egypt and God freed them from that path and he brought them to those places like he said he would. But catch what he says, because when they actually walked through the wilderness, it says that they had no one to fear as they walked through this because of what God did to their enemy in Egypt and what he did to the Pharaoh and to all those horsemen who were traveling after them. When they defeated them, which they didn't do a thing, right? When they walked through that land, the enemy cowered. So he says, in days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. That's an interesting picture. Because of the shepherd who guides you. As God had once before led them and cared for them through the wilderness, causing all their enemies to cower in fear, God will do this again, is what he says. He will be their unparalleled, uncommon, incomparable shepherd. But to do this requires the next few verses. Because to do this, God must defeat their greatest enemy. Which leads to these verses. He must defeat that which causes desolation in your heart and my heart. Who is a God like you? Verse 18, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities in the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob. The word true there is a, is a sure, steadfast unmovable. It's the same word as a root that is used for the pillars of a temple that would hold that temple secure. 
This is the kind of God who will be so sure and steadfast and secure and and solid in his commitment to you as he was to Jacob and as he showed mercy to Abraham and as he pledged to all your fathers in days long ago. There is no one like God. And here's the key thing in forgiveness and faithfulness. This is so incredibly important to see. I, as I was working through this passage, this didn't hit me with force till just about yesterday. Micah has been laying the foundation through this entire book. And now he concludes with this, that the greatest enemy of all that God wants you to see destroyed, the greatest enemy to your soul is sin. It's our own selfish hearts. And so when he, he gives us incredible picture, it is our sin and selfishness that destroys the very relationships, the very things that we desire most in our hearts. It is not the things that God provides for us. It is the fact that we have a right relationship with God. It is not the things that your husband or your wife provide for you. It is that relationship that is right with your husband or wife. It is not your relationship in the sense of things that your kids provide and what they do. It's your relationship with them. And out of that good relationship comes those things fruitful from those relationships, all the things that your hearts desire. But what we do is we get things messed up. We forget it's God and we want those things out here. Give us peace. Give us this, Lord Jesus. Make us secure here. Rather than let's be right with you and as we're right here and we're secure here, then out of this relationship, all that stuff follows. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying here is so incredibly important. Micah did not want Israel or any person ever from the day he wrote that till the day we hear it here until the day it is that God comes back. He wants every person in this room to know this single fact. That Israel's enemy is not Assyria. It was not Babylon. It was not Rome. It was not some external power or force outside of them. Israel's enemy was this. It was the sin in their own heart. Your enemy... Is it your boss at work? It's not some situation you have externally to you. It's not something out there. It is not your enemy. God has the power. In fact, when they, when they walked out of, out of Egypt, in, in this song of conquest, Moses in Exodus chapter 15 says the same thing. Who is like our God? But what he's referring to here is not so much that he overcame their sin. He's referring to this simple truth. Who is this God who has the ability over history and nature, as they saw the, the waters part, who has this incredible power over our physical enemies? Who is like this God? And God goes, I want you to know all that. Jesus, when he showed up, he, he did miracles over nature. He did miracles that would, would change people's course of history for their entire life. He did these kind of miracles that were able to overcome illness and and sickness. But the thing that marveled most of all, it should, was he had the ability to forgive a sin, to forgive your sin. And by forgiving your sin, allowing you to experience his love and his grace and his forgiveness so that you begin to walk in that. And as you begin to respond to that, you begin to respond to his blessing. That blessing begins to fill your life. And that blessing is what is life itself. And through that life, it is that life that you begin to share with others. So that in that same sacrificial love that Jesus showed on a cross, that same sacrificial love of a God who would come down to a people in Egypt and humble himself for this little group of people, that same kind of love is the same kind of love that changes the lives of people around you will change your very life. And so he, he makes this point. He says, sin must be dealt with. 
The earth, he says in verse 13, will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their evil deeds, which comes from the sin of their hearts. Jesus would say it this way. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what goes out. That's in here that makes you unclean. It's your heart. Paul would say it this way. The wages of sin is death because what comes out of your heart is what brings about those wages that will eventually bring the death and desolation and the things that are the wages as a result of what's in our heart. So sin must be dealt with. And Micah says, there is no one the equal to God, powerful like God, but not powerful necessarily even in nature, not over history, not over external forces, but powerful, hear this, in His love for you. If you are in His hands of love, there is nothing that can take you from it. And what's more than that? What makes you secure in his hands of love is what he's done for you. Which is what Mike is pointing to. That he himself became one who would walk this earth, would live this life, would die a death, and on that cross say, any sin in your heart, put it on me. And then he makes these words of promise. Who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions? Like God, who is like this God? Look at verse 18. Literally, God is able to pass over those things because of your faith and what Jesus has done for you in taking those sins. You do not stay angry forever, he says, but you delight to show mercy. It's this God who loves to show mercy. It says in, in Exodus that he holds to the third and fourth generation of sins, but for thousands of generations, a three to one thousand ratio is God's heart towards you. His love towards you. And you will again have compassion on us. And catch this again. You will tread our sins underfoot. The idea of treading our sins underfoot is this idea of trampling over sin like one would do in warfare. And the picture is that of completely stamping out and subduing and vanquishing that enemy. And then he makes a statement as well. He goes, and you'll hurl our sins into the depths of the sea, which is a reminder of this Egyptian army who's coming after them. That's their enemy, they think. And the sea comes down, and God, in a sense, hurls them into the depths of the sea, no longer for them to fear. That's the picture of what God has done with your offense towards Him. He has taken it, and like He did with that army, He's, he's actually cast it into the depths of the sea so there is no longer any fear of His judgment towards you. You no longer have to live in the shame. Once confessed, no longer have to live in the guilt of that sin. And that's the incredible love of God. The day they gazed at God, unequal in power over nature, at one time over military force, but now in that day when Jesus comes, he says they will marvel over a God whose powerful love, self-sacrificing love, not self-interest, not selfish, not self-centered, but his externally giving of himself love forgives you. But not only forgives you, deals with the sin in your heart forever and ever and ever. When I was meditating on this months ago and praying through this, I kept thinking about one time when I was in the middle of a lake and I, I actually lost 
uh, an item that, uh, that I treasured, and I, I dropped it into the lake, and I went, it's gone, right? And it's this lake, as I went back to see if I could even find out how deep, you know, get it, was 70 feet down. I wasn't going to find it. When it comes to your sin and offense before God, he didn't say it's like a lake. He says it's like being cast into a sea or an ocean. And in that day, when, when they would think of something that you would, um, was like never to be found, they would think about the ocean no different than in many ways we would think today. Do you know what? God with his mighty strength has hurled your sin and your offense into the ocean. And if he doesn't judge you, if he's no longer standing over you going, you rotten person for doing this, you, if God is a God, as it says in Scripture here, that when he says the price has been paid, when, when justice has been done, which has been done by Jesus on the cross, you could never do it. You in your strength could never do it. But God himself does it. Then what right do you have to even not forgive yourself? That's still pride. God is here saying, well, it's no judgment because the greatest power that has been unleashed is not some power of force. It's the power of love. And so some of you need to just accept that forgiveness. But there's some of us need to remember that forgiveness and we need to go out and forgive someone else this week. We need to take the blessings we've been given and begin to distribute that blessing into the lives of others. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close. And as they come to lead us in a song, let me pray. Father, what an incredible, incredible truth that you are a God who is no longer standing over us with a, a finger of judgment. To any person here who just opens their heart and confesses before you their need of you, confesses their sin before you and acknowledges that, and gives it to you and puts their complete trust in what you have done through Jesus, you have now declared them not guilty in their sight, no longer to be judged, free, to begin to walk with you as a Savior and a shepherd. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.